Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time of the Ben Jarowski show. As I speak, it is Thursday, March 23rd, 2023. Sometimes I can't remember what day it is. Uh, and I have a distinguished guest uh, awaiting uh, to discuss. But before I do, let me just tell you what's um, in uh, the headlines today, because it's what my distinguished guest and I are going to be discussing uh, has to do with Donald Trump's pending indictment uh, in New York City uh, for paying off uh, Stormy Daniels. Man, this is a topic. It's been around forever. And I've been talking about this with my distinguished guests, just reminiscing, taking a trip down the memory lane for six years. Six years. <laughs> Unbelievable. Donald Trump and the porn star. Uh, so anyway, two columns. In the New York Times, I, I've been making fun of the New York Times a lot, and they're so easy to make fun of. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'll I'll start by making fun of them, and then I'll start by giving praise. Uh, so I'll start with the making fun of. Uh, they have a several conservative columnists in the New York Times. New York Times has a reputation for being a liberal newspaper, and of course, MAGA despises the New York Times and pounds them relentlessly and uses the New York Times as evidence uh, that the entire media is biased against MAGA, and you can't trust them. And there's the New York Times, despite the fact that MAGA, nothing they do will ever get stop MAGA from maligning them and mocking them and tormenting them. The New York Times is always bending over backwards to try to prove that somehow or other they are above it, and they're just unbiased. And so then they that they employ uh, right-wing columnists uh, like uh, Ross Doutet, I guess that's how he pronounces his name. I just probably butchered the poor man's name. Uh, so this gentleman uh, is there's a, a string of there's David Brooks, uh, Brett Stevens. They're really good, and I got to give them credit uh, at pretending as though they're above politics when really they're just right wing. <laughs> they're kind of like MAGA creatures uh, who are too embarrassed to admit that they uh, probably voted for Donald Trump, and uh, so they pretend they're above it all. And they're like, well, let me just scrutinize the issue of the day 
in a way that is completely objective. And then I'll come to some conclusions. And they're always like, they do it in kind of a deceitful way. Like they're pretending to be really uh, straight and honest about things when they really kind of got their hand on the scales, so to speak. Here's a classic example uh, from Dodat, um, where he's talking about the uh, pending uh, indictment in New York of Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, he's trying to dismiss it, you know, like, well, there's really nothing there. And it's kind of a violation. He goes on to say, Democrats, beware. Uh, you know, you do this to Donald Trump, Republicans will do this to you. So you don't want to go down this road. This is a classic Republican argument. But to prove his point, uh, he goes back in time to talk about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. And he writes, the Clinton scandals establish a general principle that presidents are above the law as long as the law breaking involved minor infractions covering up tawdry sex. If a potential Trump prosecution requires overturning that principle, then prosecutors might as well appear in court wearing Democratic Party paraphernalia. The effect will be the same. Let me point out, Clinton was effectively indicted. He was impeached. That's effectively an indictment. He was acquitted. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. They're so dishonest. He's acting as though, well, we, you know, the Republicans are above it all. They didn't They didn't indict Clinton for lying about sex with Monica Lewinsky. Yes, they did. They just couldn't win their case. I think it's going to be a difficult case to win in New York, but I think uh, the New York prosecutor has a better chance of convicting, uh, excuse me, of convincing a New York juror, jury uh, that Donald Trump is guilty than the Republicans did. Kenneth Starr did back in 19, what is it, 98 in the Senate, but they did indict him. A little tricky games. All right, enough bashing the New York Times. Uh, I will now hail the New York Times, Gail Collins. I'm a big fan of hers, uh, even as everybody knows from a couple of weeks ago. I'm not a big fan of that little sit down she does with Brett Stevens, but she is a very funny columnist. And so she weighs in with Trump and the indictment, and the headline is Sex, Lies, and Trump. Things are getting stormy. <laughs> And she poses the following question. Which do you think is worse for a president of the United States? A, try to bully a Georgia official into changing the election results. B, ignore Justice Department demands that he return a pile of classified government documents he took with him when he left office. C, incited his followers to attack the Capitol on January 6, 2021. D, no, no, I'm getting a headache. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, those are just some of the, the sins. And in each that Trump has uh, perpetrated, and in each instance, there's been some right-wing columnist for the New York Times pretending he's above it all to urge the Democrats not to pursue it because you wouldn't want the Republicans to do the same to you. I would hope the Republicans, if a Democratic president incited a riot at the Capitol to overturn a legal election, I would hope, I would hope the Republicans would prosecute. All right, enough of that. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, or we're going to take the deep dive on Donald Trump in New York prosecution and maybe get to the Dominion case. We'll see. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hey, good afternoon. Listeners, and good afternoon, Ben. Uh, my name is Jim Coogan, uh, principal and trial lawyer at the law firm of Coogan Gallagher in lovely Park Ridge, Illinois, just 
just off the northwest side of the city, sandwiched between Chicago and O'Hare Airport. And uh, once in a while, I come on here with Ben and we uh, we go over all the, <laughs> all these entertaining stories that have way too many legal angles to them uh, and try to figure out what the heck is going on in the world. Absolutely. A Park Ridge home. Is, main, is Park Ridge home the main south? It is. Yes. And uh, the Bears may draft a main south uh, graduate uh, in the upcoming uh, NFL draft to play on the offensive line. But we are not here to discuss football or main south. Uh, we're here to discuss Donald John Trump. Uh, all right, uh, Jim, it's been too long since it's been on the show. I've been utterly preoccupied with Chicago mayoral politics. So let's put the Chicago mayoral election to the side. Uh, let's take the deep dive into uh, what's going on. Uh, Alvin Braggs, the district attorney in New York, uh, has been uh, parading witnesses before a grand jury in New York for I don't know how long, quite a while now, uh, gathering, uh, presenting the evidence to persuade them to indict a Donald Trump for his role uh, in the Stormy Daniels uh, saga. You and I have been talking Stormy Daniels and Donald Trump forever. So why don't you just do uh, what you do so well and offer up a recitation for folks just to remind them of what the issues here, what happened, uh, and what's at stake. So go ahead. Yeah, so it, it is. there's a lot to it, and it has been an issue that has reverberated around the Trump candidacy, presidency, and now post-presidency uh, era because, well, I mean, a lot of this is of his own making. Let's, let's start with that. This is not, while every story is, is attempted to be spun as creating a victim out of Mr. Trump, um, this is something that's entirely of his own design, and it's, it's become a story and a potential criminal indictment because of the way he decided to handle it. <clears throat> so as... Everybody probably recalls uh, Michael Cohen is a guy who rose to some uh, media stardom, frankly, as a Trump advocate in the media before he had his falling out with Trump. He was a lawyer in the New York area. He had some long-term connections. He actually ran his own sort of questionable uh, schemes in the legal world in New York. But uh, with taxi medallions and some other crazy things that were going on, but but among other things, for a long time in the Trump organization, he was a uh, well, let's call him a fixer, and like a Michael Clayton type. Where of course he's an attorney, he has a law license, and he has some understanding of the law. But a lot of what he's doing is is sort of peripheral to the law when it comes to talking to someone that needs to be talked to, or delivering a message, going around. Uh, gathering information, or in some pa- places, uh, actually delivering money. So when it comes to this this uh, Stephanie Clifford, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels story, he was the one who actually transmitted the money that was paid to her as part of an agreement that she wouldn't talk about, an alleged affair. I say alleged because, of course, the uh, the confusing, ironic way that this ends up playing itself out is Donald Trump would claim that none of it happened, which of course begs the question of why you would pay somebody $130,000 not to talk about something that didn't happen. But in the course of running for president in 2016, they ran this through in a certain way that because they didn't disclose how it was paid and where the money came from, 
would have been an illegal campaign funding, or I should say campaign finance reporting violation. So this, the, as we went through the four years of the Trump presidency, presidents generally never get indicted while they're in office. There's, we, we've, we as a country learned a lot more about this because of Robert Mueller's investigation that the Justice Department has its own internal guidelines and why they wouldn't indict a president and charge them with a crime. It doesn't mean that they can't be charged with something locally, but generally speaking, it just does not happen. <clears throat> There's no prohibition against it, but it's such a impracticality for a local prosecutor to try to prosecute a crime when that person is sitting in office. And every president would raise the issue that there's no time for this now. I need to do this later. Uh, and there's some, some Supreme Court precedent on that because Bill Clinton once sat for a deposition in a civil case while he was in office. But um, generally, these things can still be put off until they leave. So that is what happened. The New York attorney, uh, uh, district attorney's office when Trump left office, uh, as I recall, a bit reluctantly in 2021, uh, they resumed their investigation. They had this on the back burner. They started to look at it again. And then the Cy Cyrus Vance, who had been the district attorney at the time, uh, his term had expired. He'd been in the office for a long time, decided not to seek re-election. And so when a new attorney came in named Alvin Bragg, who's presently the chief district attorney elected office for Manhattan, uh, initially, he sidelined the investigation, and there were some uh, prosecutors who were who had been brought into the office to be a part of what would generally be a complicated prosecution. I mean, campaign finance case, in and of itself, not necessarily something where you need an experienced, powerful team to prosecute it, especially if it's just documentation and you could just show what somebody didn't do right. But we're talking about Donald Trump, and we're talking about the former president, and we'll get into this more, but... Just Donald Trump, regardless of if he was ever president, is a uh, a difficult litigant to deal with. So Alvin Bragg initially sort of sidelined this. Some people left the office. They were a bit miffed. There were actually some public statements made and some comments from those prosecutors saying they didn't agree with the decision. They thought there was ample evidence. They thought as a prosecutor, the, the evidence demonstrated that they could prove the crime. And if they can prove the crime beyond a reasonable doubt, they believe that their obligation is to charge somebody with it. Prosecutors have an enormous amount of power in this country. They have an enormous amount of discretion. But their decision-making process, if something is a priority and, and they have the evidence and they have the predicate for charging with someone, it, the question is, can we prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? And if we have it, we should move forward. So recently, um, I guess with a variety of different factors kind of urging Mr. Bragg to reconsider. He reinstituted a grand jury, started to bring in test wit witnesses to testify about what these facts were. One of those star witnesses, of course, was Michael Cohen, who has made an, a, a, a voluminous amount of public statements. He's got podcasts of his own. He's been on television talking about what's happened here. So his testimony is really no secret to any of us that the payment was made the payment was ordered by Donald Trump. The payment was financed by Donald Trump or people giving money to Trump to do it. And it was done to protect Donald Trump. So the, the question always arose that if they prosecuted Cohen for doing this and he went to prison for it, then why wouldn't the person who actually benefited from this crime also be prosecuted regardless of their stature and regardless of how difficult they might be? 
which leads us to where we are now. Cohen's been back multiple times in front of the grand jury. And just to remind everybody, grand juries are sort of special. It's not like a jury that sits through a trial and decides guilt or innocence. They can sit for months, depending on how each state runs their system, listening to pieces of evidence over time, and they can ask for things. And the prosecutor will say, you know, what, what more do you want here? Do you want to get me to go get these documents? There's an interaction process. It's kind of like they're doing the investigation, but it is people off the street. They don't work for the prosecutor's office. They're not public officials. They're not elected. They're just subpoenaed like anybody else. And eventually they can decide to say, yes, we think that there is a, this is a true bill. That's a phrase they use in the grand jury world. This is something where you should charge the person. And the prosecutor goes back and decides, okay, I'm going to go forward with this. Um, and we'll talk about more of this, but there's been a couple of other witnesses that have testified. So they've heard pretty much anything they're going to hear at this point, which is why besides the unusual public announcement from the uh, potential accused, Mr. Trump, uh, claiming that he was about to get arrested and indicted. So besides that, it also, this would be the point in time, naturally, where that would be the next step, unless Bragg, even after all this, decided not to indict. All right. Uh, you give me uh, a, a lot of things to follow up on. Uh, and I'll just follow up with this before we get into Cohen and Trump's counterattack, etc. What would be, I know there's the indictment hasn't uh, occurred yet, but what would be the crime allegedly uh, perpetrated by Trump that he would be tried for? What is the crime? So <clears throat> essentially it would be the, the payment of this money and because they use campaign funds for it, you can't not report that you have this expenditure. So they wanted to keep the expenditure quiet didn't report it that way, that's a violation. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why you've heard so much noise from Trump defenders and Trump himself, that normally that sort of thing might only be a misdemeanor. And this a potential charge could be that they're going to charge him with a felony for doing so, which might have to be based upon the amount of money that was involved or the lengths to which it was. It was uh, they went to cover it up afterwards. So uh, if, if, it's, if, let's say it was a misdemeanor, would there be a trial? Yeah, so any crime where somebody could lose, because even a misdemeanor could carry up to up to a year, generally speaking, that's the, the marker, up to a year of prison time if you're convicted for it. A lot of times it's less than that. I mean, you can have financial penalties as well. But if you don't plead guilty to something and part of your prosecution and your, your plea deal is that you wouldn't serve any time, then your liberty is at stake. So they have to take it to trial and a jury has to decide it. So the answer is yes. Yeah. So really it doesn't matter if it's a misdemeanor or a felony, whether he's indicted. I, I always, <laughs> we're just going down one by one, the counter arguments. Uh, that's a really uh, meaningless distinction that they're throwing up uh, to do this kind of like sort of what they always do, throwing up mean meaningless distinctions and false equivalencies. Well, it, it minimizes it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like we just said, you could serve a, a year of prison time for a misdemeanor. That That's not a small thing, but it sounds, you know, felony just has all that weight to it. So they're trying to minimize the entire thing. And that's, that's always the media strategy. All right. And I just want to point out the, uh, uh, the use of alleged uh, in terms of the alleged affair between uh, Donald Trump and Stormy Daniels. Uh, I, I, this part of the story um, always 
makes me sort of laugh that Donald Trump, on one hand, is constantly bragging uh, about his sexual exploits. Um, but whenever he's accused, you know, he, he, I mean, he went, Howard, just go back to listen to little Donald Trump interviews on Howard Stern's show back in the day in the 80s and the 90s. And you'll hear about Donald Trump bragging like crazy uh, how studly he is. But whenever he's accused directly of like, you know, everything from rape uh, to this uh, one night affair, uh, he always denies it. Uh, it's just it's kind of interesting. Uh, but uh, for what it's worth, uh, Stormy Daniels does not deny it. And she has uh, been quoted as saying that uh, her rendezvous, uh, hotel, motel rendezvous with Donald Trump was, quote, the worst 90 seconds of my life. So there you go. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. I just had to say that. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a human thing that people can understand without getting too deep into it, I think. 90 seconds. Come on, Donnie. God damn. You last longer than that. I'm sorry. That was a terrible joke. All right. Um, so let's go back uh, to uh, the, um, the, uh, the main witness, Michael Cohen. Fascinating story in the New York Times uh, that I just recently read. It's fresh in my mind about Michael Cohen. Uh, and I didn't realize this. I probably knew it and forgotten it, Jim. He served 13 months including, I think, 51 weeks in solitary confinement. I mean, he, the Trump people went after him hard. There was one point where he was released from uh, prison, and then uh, the correctional system, Trump-led correctional system, you can imagine the crying that MAGA would be doing if somehow the roles were reversed, uh, sent him back to prison because he was going to write a book about it, tell-all book, was a bestseller. And um, so he has paid a price for um, his alliance with Donald Trump. Uh, and he has talked about it as though it was like a cult-like attachment he had to Trump. He was just enamored of Trump, Trump's lifestyle, his persona, his glamour, his glitz, everything it is about Donald. The interviews he did with Howard Stern where he bragged about, you know, uh, having sex with beautiful women, all the, the whole Trump persona, he was into it. And then at some point, he realized it was really twisted and uh, he was going to pay a heavy price for this like cult-like addiction to Donald Trump. And ever since then, Jim, this is a fascinating side part of it. He's gone the other way. And he's like, I want the world to know what a kind of sick, deviant, twisted mind we have here. You elected this man president, by the way, America. I want the world to know. How do you think Michael Cohen will be, uh, if there is an indictment, uh, as sort of the chief accuser against Donald Trump? Well, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt that he would be the star witness in that trial, other than obviously Stormy Daniels. Um, maybe more of a spectacle when she's there actually testifying. Although she doesn't even have to be a part of the, the witnesses because it's not other than confirming that she received the payment perhaps. So, <clears throat> you know, he, he has become like you described. He's, he's, he's really trying to uh, do the clarion call and wake people up to, you'll get, if you're associated with Donald Trump, you get destroyed. Um, you know, the joke that's been going around for at least the last two or three years now is that 
MAGA, M-A-G-A, really stands for Make Attorneys Get Attorneys because <laughs> every single lawyer that's ever been associated with them has either been indicted for something or is investigated for something or eventually gets in trouble and has to become the state's witness for something. Uh, we, we just, I mean, I know we're trying to stick to this case for the moment, but uh, the, the lawyer in Florida, Evan Corcoran, who prepared the document attesting to the uh, to the federal government that they had turned over everything that was in Trump's possession. the And it's a very big deal. The crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege, that's what the Corcoran situation is about. Just to, I will finish this deviation because I started it. Attorney-client conversations are privileged. It is one of the most sacrosanct privileges in the law for obvious reasons because if you can't have frank conversations with your lawyer, when you're, especially if you're a criminal uh if you're potentially a criminal, criminal litigant and you're the accused, then you can't defend yourself and your lawyer can't competently defend you. So the law doesn't have the power to compel that lawyer to talk about those conversations for that very obvious reason. However, there are exceptions and they are very, very narrow exceptions and they're only used in very extreme circumstances. They can include, a lawyer can break that confidentiality if they know the person's about to commit another crime, but usually only if that crime is going to endanger someone's safety. So even a, even a securities crime or something like that, that might actually, the lawyer may lose his license for talking about it, but they know someone's about to go shoot somebody, they can call the police. In this situation, the federal government went to the, to the extent of seeking to have the, the crime fraud exemption from the privilege invoked in order to compel Corcoran to give information and to testify about his involvement in talking to Trump and whoever else might have been in meetings about what where the documents were at Mar-a-Lago, why they didn't turn them over, whatever else they might have talked about. And did he ask, is this everything? What was the response? Those are important pieces of information, but typically if you have that conversation with your lawyer, it's still going to be privileged. So there's yet another person who has now been embroiled in litigation over what otherwise might be a very simple thing. You left the White House, you took some things with you, even if you did it by uh, intentionally, just give them back. The National Archives are generally nice people. They, their job is, a, is they're kind of like librarians for really, you know, important stuff. And, and some of it's top secret, though, so that gets a little bit more complicated. If you're going to turn it over and you're going to write a document out saying you gave everything back, tell the truth. Because they obviously didn't, now he's in trouble. So just like everybody else, uh, Cohen ended up being charged with a federal crime. And by the way, that's one other thing that might be a little confusing here is the same campaign finance issue could have been charged either in state court in New York, which is the potential Trump uh, indictment. Cohen was uh, charged and was prosecuted by the federal government. That's why he was in the Bureau of Prisons. And that's why there was actually some involvement from former uh, Attorney General Bill Barr, was actually trying to get Cohen out. But then I think because Cohen continued to be such a pain, that's why they were so punitive towards him. And he made that claim. And it's hard to argue with. Somebody that, an attorney who committed essentially a campaign finance violation is stuck in, in uh, solitary confinement, other than maybe for his own protection, that's that's bad. I mean, that's not a, that is no picnic. So now I can't remember where else we started with this, but just where would Cohen come up as a witness? Yeah. He's he's emphatic about all these things at this point. So I think the only thing that you could do if you're defending that case is maybe you look at some of his public statements and the way that he's behaved and you try to spin that and say, hey, he's just burned. 
you know, he did this on his own. He was just a, maybe he was a true believer. He was trying to protect the boss. And because he ended up being hung out to dry, he's just bitter now. His sour grapes and all these other things that he said about Donald Trump are just him being angry and trying to resurrect his career and create a, a spectacle of himself in the media so that he can do something now that he's uh, unable to practice law in New York and unable to do so many of the things that he used to do professionally. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think that's going to be, um, uh, I think, a difficult uh, thing to sell to a New York jury if it comes to that. Uh, you already mentioned, it's uh, just sort of in passing, one of the uh, avenues that Donald Trump and his lawyers will pursue uh, to avoid it even coming to trial. Uh, and that is the issue of federal law versus state law. And I'm sure based on everything I've read in the newspapers that Donald Trump's lawyers, how he finds a how he finds lawyers, Jim, I know. I mean, God, the MAGA joke was a pretty good joke. I'd never heard that one before. Um, make attorneys get attorneys. Um, how he finds lawyers to do his bidding. Good God. But anyway, uh, his attorneys, I assume, will immediately, uh, once the indictment comes down, presuming it does come down, uh, uh, file documents, legal documents to have it uh, just thrown out uh, on the with the notion that there's a conflict between federal and state law. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it, so one issue could have been, and it, it shouldn't apply here, but there could be claims about double jeopardy if somebody's already been charged with something in federal court or in federal, uh, by a federal prosecutor versus a state prosecutor. Um, but, but the other issue is if, if there is, when it comes to criminal law like this, if there's a specific statute, which there is, that requires the compliance that they're going to allege that he didn't do or that he buried by not properly disclosing it or disclosing it falsely, then it, it really shouldn't be, there shouldn't actually be as much of a conflict. Now, I, I will say that, that you've seen some filings even in uh, the in other cases where his, he's got attorneys making arguments that are not facially really that strong but they're just intent. I think this is in Georgia. There was a filing recently where it's clearly for the purposes of dragging things out. It's not going to be granted. I mean, there are situations where pretrial motions are filed in criminal cases to dismiss the charges, but essentially it has to be that there is no set of facts that exists or that it hasn't been properly charged in the first place that the facts cannot be proven that this, that the like, if you have a theoretical set of facts, and the question is, we just say we, we're saying they're not true, that's not a dismissal. We call that a question of fact in the law, where the, the plaintiff side or the prosecutor says, "Here's what it is." The defense side says, "Well, we disagree." You're not getting that case dismissed. You could say, "Well, they haven't even pled it properly. This doesn't even exist," or the things that they're alleging don't actually fit the statute. That's one way you could get it dismissed, and then the other possible way is. Um, pretrial motions to suppress evidence by saying that something was improperly uh, obtained, that the prosecutors violated the Fourth Amendment or the Fifth Amendment in their uh, in obtaining that evidence. You know, improper seizure of documents. They didn't have the right search warrant. The warrant wasn't carried out properly. Um, you know, this is why if if it had been done, if it has been done properly, and we'll find out then that's why prosecutors have the obligation. They have to cross their T's, they have to dot their I's, they have to go down the whole checklist. 
this really, again, it, it wouldn't really be a complicated case when it comes to that because the documents are whatever they are. They, they submit them to whatever the body is in New York that you make your financial or your campaign contribution recordings and disclosures to. And then there's the financial documents behind it that you can be asked to provide. They've probably asked for those. If it doesn't match up, there we are. I mean, it's, that's kind of, it's, it's not, I'm sure it's not in as compared to our Rico case or as compared like the possible case that you'd have in Georgia where it's going to have multiple witnesses and all kinds of different threads of evidence. This really wouldn't be that complicated from a legal perspective. Uh, all right. So I'm getting ahead of myself here with uh, sort of guessing what sort of tactics Trump's lawyers will employ uh, to have the case thrown out so he doesn't have to deal with it at all. Uh, while that, that's speculation, uh, there's very much the counterattack uh, in the court of public opinion that Donald Trump is quarterbacking. And he just seems to love, <laughs> he seems to be loving this. Uh, and uh, he was the one, as you pointed out, who called attention to a pending indictment that has not happened yet to arrest. He says he's looking forward to his perp walk. He wants a perp walk. Uh, that's a classic New York thing where they walk a defendant in front of the media. They take pictures of the guy with handcuffs on, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, I'm not sure that'll come to that uh, in the case of a former president. Uh, but he is enjoying stirring up uh, MAGA, uh, knowing full well that it's really causing headaches for Ron DeSantis. Uh, we'll get into uh, that. Uh, as well. But, you know, I, I have to smile at it, uh, Jim, because on one hand, he's like, yeah, I can't wait for my perp walk. I'm going to I'm gonna be looking good when I go in there. I want the whole world to watch it. If it does come to trial, I wonder if he's going to have that same attitude of defiance about testifying. You know, and I <laughs> got a feeling uh, he's, he's not going to Mr. Plead the Fifth. Uh, I don't know if he'll testify. Uh, what is the uh, impact, you think, of Donald Trump's uh, counterattack on the case itself? Uh, and then we'll get into the politics of it. But just on the case itself, does it? do you think it intimidates the district attorney? Well, there's no question that that's what it's designed to do. Um, by the way, there's this guy. Um, he used to own a lot of real estate in New York, kind of a self-promoter. You might have heard of him, Donald Trump. He, he once said that the kind of people that plead the fifth are only guilty people in mob mafia types, <laughs> which I don't know. Is it the same Donald Trump? I don't know if you, uh, I, I have to go look it up, but um, yeah, I, look, you can, I, I'm fairly confident that the, the braggadociousness will continue all the way up to the point where he may be given an opportunity to testify in his own defense and he will not do it. I could be wrong that, you know, he may decide, that maybe there's a pathway to try to confuse everything and that his testimony might swing how that goes. Uh, there are people who I think on some level might have mental issues like, uh, the, you know, the attorney, um, Alec Murdoch, who testified his own defense in that criminal trial in South Carolina a month ago, who I have to believe on some level that he was the only one who thought it was a good idea for him to testify because he still believed that he could convince people of things that are just objectively preposterous. And he was terrible. He was terrible. And, you know, I'd lawyer, I'll get back to the question in a second. 
But I had lawyer friends who comment because that stuff was live. It was really fascinating to watch it through YouTube. At least that's how I found it. That the prosecutor on cross-examination asked a lot of open-ended questions, which you don't have to do. You can grab that witness by the lapels with words, I, I suppose. Cross-examination includes a lot of short, tight, yes or no questions where you force them to admit something that you need them to admit or point to a piece of evidence and show them whatever it is and confront them with it. And yet they let him go on. And there was a lot of dialogue and back and forth. But I think that prosecutor was very comfortable doing that because they knew this guy was such a liar and so demonstrably a liar that it would only make it worse. And the jurors said that's exactly what their impression was. He was up there for a day and a half. And some of them, I think, actually said they weren't sure until he started testifying. And then they knew for sure that he did it. Um, Because, again, it's a criminal case. It's got to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So the, the statement that Trump made is wild statement about, you know, a, a lefty prosecutor that's funded by George Soros, who's about to prosecute him, who dropped the case originally, and everybody knows he's innocent, and there's all this rattling on and on and on. That's his motion to dismiss in the public sphere, because he still believes, and he learned this lesson a long time ago from the late, not so great Roy Cohn, that every case is litigated in the public sphere. And in the New York, New York media world, that's really... I think that's probably more true than almost anywhere else, maybe London, because of all the influence that tabloids have and how, how, you know, never uh, just all encompassing that is. So this is his effort to, yes, intimidate Alvin Bragg, intimidate the judge, intimidate a potential future juror, um, and maybe just cause somebody to get cold feet somewhere along the way or just realize this is more trouble than it's worth. Uh, I don't think it'll work. I mean, he tried this. He's been, look, from the very beginning when he got sued by the Justice Department along with his father back in the 70s for housing discrimination where it was, there was explicit evidence that they lit, people, they would tell people, they would say this, that you can't, like, people would admit, like, I think they had some wiretapping or something or uh, undercover taping going on where a housing manager for the Trump Property Management Group would basically say, we're not renting to, to black people here in this building. They had him. And what did Trump do? He countersued for $100 million because he was somehow defamed by the government for uh, coming after his organization and his dad's company for racially race-based housing discrimination. It didn't really work, but that was how he approached it. And eventually, there was some kind of settlement, and it's a financial thing either way. They weren't going to go to jail over it. So this has always been how he works these things, that he doesn't, I don't think he really understands the law, and I don't think he would take the time to do it. But the only thing that really matters to him is that public opinion. So he's coming out swinging because that's just how he behaves. It's all counter punches or preemptive punches. So if you want to talk about the facts of the case, that's not going to matter. It's all sort of some punchy language about this case has already been dropped. Everybody knows I'm already innocent. Uh, a simple, stupid thing that never even happened. You can't prove that I did it in the first place. That's where he's going to start. And it's, it's, it's designed to taint the whole process beforehand. It may just be a Hail Mary, but he, that's never stopped the guy. Yeah. Uh, then it has the political ramifications. So now uh, let's just sort of move away from the legal end of things and talk about the political ramifications. Uh, 
and by the way, I don't think they're going to intimidate Bragg out of dropping this case. And I don't think uh, they're going to intimidate uh, jurors from going after Trump. Uh, and I think it's uh, it'll have a greater impact, politically speaking, outside of the courtroom with MAGA. Uh, like MAGA is loves Donald Trump because Donald Trump wages war against the people that MAGA hates. Uh, it really has nothing to do with policy anymore. It's just if you hate somebody and uh, Donald Trump is fighting them, then you like Donald Trump. And I, I got to tell you, one of my, the side shows to this that I have to bet I kind of enjoy is watching Ron DeSantis squirm. Uh, and uh, he is, of course, the governor of Florida, uh, who uh, has not announced that he's going to run for the Republican nomination in 2024, but is making every move uh, indicating he will uh, on a platform that is generally anti-woke, for whatever that means. Uh, and um, But he doesn't know how to deal with Trump. And he doesn't know how to deal with this case. Because on one hand, if he uh, says Donald Trump is a um, is like an innocent man being <laughs> just the concept of Donald Trump being innocent, uh, being picked on by the George Soros prosecutor, which is what he sa- says, that makes that heightens Trump's uh, profile among MAGA, makes it him look less, DeSantis look less. Trump is the king. He, DeSantis, is defending Trump. And then on the other hand, how are you going to defend the guy for paying hush money uh, to uh, Stormy Daniels? How does that look good for the family man of family values? I'm intrigued by this, uh, Jim. Uh, I know you uh, follow politics very closely. Your thoughts on the political fallout? Well, you know, the the first phase of it that I'll mention in contrast to, or actually really just to emphasize what you said about not intimidating Alvin Bragg, uh, one political piece of this is that the Republican um, extremist caucus in the House of Representatives has added this case to the things that they're saying, everything is weaponized, the DOJ is weaponized, uh, the EPA is weaponized, the whatever everything's weaponized, the weaponization of government. I think that's actually the name of the committee. So they've included this as the part of the list of things where everything's weaponized and, and, and obviously it's all to victimize some right-wing cause or some right-wing person. So Bragg has vociferously responded and said that this is ridiculous. They try. I think they're even going to try to subpoena him to come to Washington to talk about this case. I mean, look, on top of everything else, the predicate to have oversight in Congress and hold committee hearings is based upon the House of Representatives having federal oversight over something. It's a it's a state prosecutor in a county in New York, which, okay, if there was some other issue and you were trying to educate the public and it was part of some, that might make sense. But hauling him in front of them to, to sort of intimidate him is preposterous. It just is. I mean, I think that the general premise of that committee is preposterous, but it's only because that's what the facts shows. Now, as to the bigger thing, you know, how does the Republican Party process this and how do they deal with it? It's put them all in a bit of a trick bag. They don't really know how to talk about it. Um, you know, I don't think he's a very serious presidential candidate, but Mike Pence fancies himself as one. 
he obviously could take the perspective that it's a family. He's a family values guy, and he he could he could distance himself from Trump and make a more a stronger statement, uh, in and try to tap into the religious, uh, family values portion of the Republican electorate. But that group of people have become programmed to believe that anything Donald Trump does is okay. I mean, he they don't care what he says. They don't care about either actual sexual assault, bragged about sexual assault, or alleged sexual assault from him. If you're a, an evangelical Christian and you don't care about those things, then obviously you have put your political interests before what I would have to think are the tenets of your faith. Okay, And they always go with this, well, you don't know what's in someone's heart. Okay, fine. I don't know what's in all their hearts and I don't know what's in Donald Trump's heart. But you can't say family values include having an affair with a, with a, a porn, pornographic actress while your wife is pregnant. Put it stop right there, and then you get to okay. That would explain why somebody would want to pay some money to make sure that information didn't become public. It didn't work, obviously. We've been talking about it for six years, like you said. Um, and when it comes to, to Ron DeSantis, I mean, he he will probably end up staying in the lane of he'll use all the buzzwords about George Soros and leftists, and just kind of attack the prosecute attack the notion of prosecuting someone unfairly because that fits with the right-wing victimhood complex that's been so prevalent, especially since 2016. Um, because he wants to, to you know, sort of stay a little bit off of that line. Um, and and he's, I mean, he's waiting. He's waiting to see whether or not this or something else is the thing that causes Donald Trump to finally lose some favor and take his chance to try to elevate himself. Yeah, and, and the, the irony is it probably, again, raises, it raises Donald Trump's profile with MAGA. And uh, it probably earns him, if, if this is possible, uh, even more adoration well, from the real heart. Hey, look, look what they're trying to do to take me down. They're even going to this stupid old case from so many years ago, and it's just a business records issue, and who cares about It's a technicality, and this is how desperately they need to take me down. It, it, it was either him or somebody else said it, and one of his um, spokespeople used it as a, oh, I think it was... Elise Stefanik, the, the uh, unfortunate right-wing congressperson from upstate New York, who I think before she decided to go full MAGA was looked at as a credible former national security type person um, that unfortunately is gone after that electorate. And she, she did that in her statement about it, said that this is the only way that they can take him down, the leftists, because they can't beat him at the ballot box, which, as I checked, Joe Biden got all, like more than 7 million more votes than Donald Trump did in the last election and he lost the election. And uh, so I, I don't, I don't, I think that even that on its face seems ridiculous, but that's, that's where they'll go with it. And that's where Donald Trump will continue to go with it to say, yeah, that, that means I'm the leader because if everything is based on victimhood and everything is based on the whole system, you know, he still wants to appear as if he's an outsider, even though he's actually been president. So being persecuted and being the target of all these things is a way to portray himself as the whole system is still trying to get me. You know, the deep state and the leftists and the communists and the socialists are still coming after me. So I'm still your hero. And, or as he recently put it, I'm your, he's a uh, vindicator or, or so, something punitive. He was going to go punish people on their behalf. That was a speech that he gave at CPAC because it's all about Oh, retribution and, and going back and, and, and getting everybody who came after me. So 
it'll fit with that narrative from him. It's harder to make that case from prison, but I'm sure he'll try. No, he could be giving his uh, nomination speech as the Republican candidate for president uh, from prison. Uh, and uh, uh, if this continues, there's, I think, again, there's at least four uh, cases uh, mounting against Donald Trump for various alleged crimes. Uh, my favorite defense was one offered up by one of Trump's attorneys. I can't remember which attorney it was. He's got a cast of characters. Uh, it's an attorney that you've mentioned to me in the past. Um, I think his last name begins with a T. Uh, first name Joseph, I want to say. I just can't remember the full name right now. Takapina? And I'm Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, that attorney. And he went on some TV show and he said, and I am paraphrasing from memory, that yes, Donald Trump may have made this payoff, but he was doing it to protect his family. And I had a laugh at that one, man. <laughs> you know, and if because first of all, again, Donald Trump bragged that this is his persona, this is his brand, that he is Mr. Studley when it came to women. The, the famous grab him by the pussy tape was the one where Donald Trump openly boasted about uh, how he would just felt free to do whatever he wanted with women. Ben, ben uh, remember, he famously dodged Vietnam by having a doctor falsify bone spur complaints and then went on the Howard Stern show and bragged about how going out to nightclubs was his personal Vietnam, like dealing with, I guess, STDs. That was like yes. how he, that's, that was, he said that. It's not me saying that. Yeah. That's what he said. No. So this is his brand. You know, it, it, he, he's very proud of it. Uh, it's hard to divorce this from who he is, this persona that he has, the swagger that he carried himself with for all these years. Uh, and so for this lawyer to go on and go, he's trying to protect his family. <laughs> I'm just like laughing. Uh, and I actually, uh, point of fact, I don't think his wife was pregnant at the time of the alleged affair with uh, Stormy Daniels. I believe she had just given birth, and that's why she couldn't be at this golf tournament. Uh, that was the excuse. I think, I'm pretty sure that uh, she had just given birth, which kind of is even worse in some ways. I don't know. Uh, we can argue that point. Neither <laughs> one is good, know. that's for sure. <laughs> Neither one is good. Uh, so I, um, I must admit, uh, there's a, I'm taking uh, some delight in all this. Uh, I believe that Donald Trump was one of the great frauds and con men of our time. Uh, I say this all the time, uh, Jim, and uh, I must vehemently disagree with the columnist for the New York Times. I feel that uh, at some point he has to be or should be held accountable for his ever-growing list of crimes uh, uh, misdemeanors, even if they're just quote unquote, just misdemeanors. Uh, so I really hope, uh, Alma Bragg continues. This does not let the New York times or anybody else deter him. Uh, we'll be following this uh, case. I know, uh, one way or another, you and I were having conversations today. We're kind of running out of time, but just, uh, just a general thought. We should do a whole show in dominion and Fox. Cause this one is fascinating as well. It deserves a whole show. Um, I've talked about it in passing a lot. 
uh, Dominion voting versus Fox, defamation lawsuit. Uh, we're all it's all pretrial flurry right now. Uh, Fox desperately trying to get the judge to throw the case out of court. Um, just a general sense, uh, Jim, you have of where the case is going. Do you think it'll be thrown out of court? Do you think it'll be there be a settlement, or do you think it'll go to trial? Well, it's it's similar in some ways to uh, the E. Jean Carroll cases in in that you've cited before. In that, I don't know how interested Dominion is going to be in a settlement. They may not want to settle this case. I mean, there's obviously a dollar figure that Fox could throw at them, but the bigger it is, the more it looks like an admission of guilt. So <clears throat> in the meantime, as to the question of whether or not the case will proceed, uh, things aren't going very well for Fox. They recently made some kind of an effort filing a, an injunction to try to stop one of their own producers from being able to testify about things that she observed uh, rampant misogyny that was going on within the company. And these aren't even really the issues of whether or not Dominion was defamed, but her other information is she worked on Marita Bar Bartiromo's show. That was one of the shows where they were putting on um, Rudy Giuliani and <clears throat> uh, Sidney Powell, who were the people who, that, and this is, so that's the case. The case is you put Rudy Giuliani on there and he said a bunch of things that were obviously false. And then you kept putting him on there and you never fact checked him. You didn't provide any context. You didn't push back. And even afterwards, when it was obvious that those things were false, you didn't do anything else about it either. So it happened on Tucker Carlson's show. It happened on all these other shows. But even just as one microcosm, this woman was a producer on there and they were trying to intimidate her. And one of the things she wants to talk about is that the lawyers from Fox tried to get her to undersell what happened or bury things or pretend like she didn't remember, which that, by the way, can be a different type of problem for an attorney because suborning perjury is, is, is both could be a crime and could be a reason why your law license has some problems. And telling a witness not to say something in the interest of your bigger client when you're ostensibly representing that witness, now you've walked into a conflict of interests and you're doing things that could potentially harm that witness without, I'm assuming, properly informing them of this conflict when you did it. And that's, I mean, these are technical things that lawyers have to worry about, but they're very real when it comes to practicing law and keeping your law, law license. So that part of it's not going very well for them. And when it comes to, and even the rest of these things where we've been witness to so many different disclosures of, of documents that came out in discovery, depositions of people like Robert, Rupert Murdoch, the, the most powerful person who owns the greatest share of the company that owns Fox News, is basically admitting that holding on to those viewers was more important, that they put that first, that this in extraordinarily weak admission that the facts didn't matter, that they were worried about losing viewership to Newsmax, that that meant they couldn't, what, you can't, you have to coddle your viewers so much with comforting lies that they can't be exposed to the truth. So you're just going to let them keep hearing these things without fact checking, without pointing out, by the way, none of these lawsuits have been successful. By the way, there actually isn't any evidence that the, uh, that the, the wrong result uh, happened in Pennsylvania or Georgia or Arizona, that none of the audits made any sense, that Dominion voting systems weren't flipping votes and none of this stuff actually happened, that you have to protect your viewers from talking about that stuff. So if you're making a case for defamation, it's one thing to go out 
and defame like a competitor. We're talking about corporations here. Or defame like a person that you don't like. It's another thing and actually really makes the business case for Dominion when Fox is doing this to protect the bottom line more than anything else. So they're going to allow their their hosts to put knuckleheads on the air who are going to say things that are demonstrably not true. That they, Now the internal documents show that they didn't believe those people were telling the truth. That they thought Sidney Powell was, was, was out there and was, was nuts. And Rudy Giuliani was telling lies. And Tucker Carlson's actual text messages are saying, well, our viewers are, are good people and they believe this. That's not an excuse for never correcting those facts when you're putting your financial interest as a host or as a stockholder or in the or for the stockholders of the company ahead of this other company that now is look they look like they can't do the core competency which is have valid reliable voting results so if you're the lawyer for dominion that's dynamite evidence because it's more than just being mean or saying untrue things it's that they also did it for a financial motive uh well and um I feel it'll have a different outcome, let's say, than the Alex Jones case. And there's some parallels. We've talked about the Alex Jones case, uh, where Alex Jones essentially, uh, uh, eventually, uh, was uh, hit with a, a massive uh, verdict against him. I forget, it's some, like over a billion dollars. Uh, but in the aftermath, there's been stories about how he is uh, shuffling around his finances uh, to conceive, claiming bankruptcy, concealing how much he has. Uh, so that the um, the plaintiffs in that case, the Sandy Hook parents, cannot uh, get any money, and then he boasts and brags about it. Uh, I, I first of all, I don't know if ultimately he, Alex Jones, will get away with it, um, but it looks like a long term fight. But it's going to be a lot harder for Fox, publicly traded company, um, to play the same kinds of games if it comes to a settlement, if you follow what I'm saying. Well, I mean, if it comes to a jury verdict, if it's a settlement, of course, um, they would pay up or they would hope their insurance company would cover it. Um, yeah, no, this one, and, and you know, um, I got uh, kind of mixed feelings about this, sort of, Jim. On one hand, like, I'm in this business and, it, you know, the news, hate to see the news, um, intimidated this way or uh, the p- potential to intimidate reporters with um, libel lawsuits. But I mean, when you don't even have a pretext, you don't, you don't even make the bare m- minimal efforts to speak the truth. I, I feel there should be a, a a consequence for your your actions. I absolutely believe there should be a consequence for your action. Uh, yeah. Let's put it this way, Ben. I don't think that the United States Supreme Court has always gotten everything right. Okay, there are some despicable decisions that they've made in their history. There's some recent despicable decisions that are causing all kinds of chaos and heartache in this country right now. But the New York Times versus Sullivan case that set the standard for um, whether or not a public, you know, a news reporting agency or anybody else could be held liable for defaming a public official or a public in- entity that you have to show actual malice in the reporting is a good place to set that line that this could be a case, because it certainly looks like that from what we can see with the 
the things that we've just touched on here, and there's more discovery that I don't even, you and I don't know about probably that hasn't been leaked. This could be the case that shows because they were just so utterly reckless in the way they conveyed this information and passed it off as if it was actual news reporting, where that is that should be the outcome, but it doesn't lower that standard or make it easier to prosecute the New York Times itself the next time, or CNN, or whoever else the agency is, or Ben Jarofsky, or the Chicago Reader, or anybody else. Because, in other words, it almost should provide some comfort that this is the degree to which you would have to be irresponsible beyond irresponsibility, recklessness, just utter, uh, an utter disregard for whether or not what you're putting out there is the truth. And yeah, let's, about, let's not yeah. forget that you were, we're in an era where right now in the um, deeply disturbing state of Florida, they're trying to roll that back. They want to create, they want it by statute, by law, they want to pass to make it easier to prosecute news reporting agencies and also to require People who are blogging about Florida government have to register with the state of Florida. Um, so, you know, this would be the case that doesn't bother me as much because the the, the converse is the other attacks on yeah. the, the First Amendment and on the ability to publicize information that you at least put some basic effort into verifying whether it's true. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And uh, I urge everybody just... Uh, just read up on uh, the Sullivan uh, New York Times versus Sullivan case. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. It was based on a, a paid advertisement in the New York Times. It wasn't even New York Times reporting. Uh, and to think where what that generated that that case, which was uh, filed by um, uh, officials, I think in Alabama, uh, who uh, Jim Crow officials in Alabama, went all the way to the, uh, to the Supreme Court. Hugely important. Uh, decision as opposed to the ongoing uh, annihilation of journalistic standards practiced by Fox on a routine basis in order, as they say in their uh, their private text to each other, to keep their audience share from dwindling. It's just kind of mind-boggling, you know. And by the way, it's the same forces of MAGA, like earlier MAGA. Uh, in the Sullivan case, you know what I mean? Uh, the ancestors to current MAGA were the forces taking on the New York Times, essentially. So fascinating thing. I urge everybody, by the way, one last thing, Jim. I know I'm always uh, urging people to read books. There's a um, a really fascinating uh, biography. It's not really a biography, I guess, but an analysis of George Wallace that I urge everyone to read. Jefferson Cowie, Freedom's Dominion. Dominion, again. Uh, having nothing to do with the Dominion. Um, but I urge everybody to read it. George Wallace, the former uh, governor of Alabama, a segregationist to the core, who then uh, became a national politician, sort of like the for- forerunner of Trump. I urge everybody to read it. Fascinating stuff about uh, sort of white grievance politics uh, in the United States. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming on. And um, just one more shout out who you are. And if anybody wants to reach you, where they can reach you, go ahead. Yeah, of course, Ben. It's always my pleasure. So it's Jim Coogan. Uh, professionally, the law firm is Coogan Gallagher. Uh, you can the, the website's easy. It's cgtrial.com. But uh, if you just type in Coogan Gallagher, you'll find us. And, and what we pr- principally do, even though I do uh, sideline breaking down national politics and, and legal news, but our principal focus here is representing injured people. So... 
Uh, we take that very seriously. And if anybody who's listening to this has questions about something that happened, feel free to call. All right. Very good. And as Dennis likes to call him, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan, uh, Dr. D, a little shout out there. Uh, thank you very much, Jim. That's Jim Coogan. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care.